the word of God from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you. If you could remain standing while we pray over this time where we hear from the Lord as he speaks to us in his word. I'll lead us if you will bow with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your house with your people this morning. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be sitting with your word and hearing you speak to us and help us to understand who you are and who we are and how we are to live in relationship with one another. And Lord, we lift up this time to you. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Please take a seat. As we, uh, as we come to it this morning, we are, as we just heard, talking about Psalm 127. And the Psalms do give us this vocabulary for the way we communicate to God, the way we worship Him, the way we pray and express ourselves to Him. It gives us ready phrases and ready pieces of wisdom for us to implement in our lives, which is extraordinarily helpful because if you have had an experience anything like mine, there are times when you're not sure what to say. You just have a feeling, and you're not sure exactly how to express that to the Lord. So the Psalms are a timely and welcome reminder of how we can speak to the Lord. There was a time when I was really stumped on what to say, and it's because I had just started a new job. And the new job was in an organization that wanted us all to have annual goals, like 12-month goals. And one of the things that happened was I was hired on at that place uh, the first week of January. And that was when they were in their planning cycle. And so they stuck this form in front of me, and it said, um, what are your short-term goals, meaning over the next 12 months? And in a couple of places, it said, make sure these are SMART goals. And SMART was in all capital letters. And I can already see by some of the knowing smiles around the room that some of you have had to fill out these exact same kind of forms, or at least you're familiar with SMART goals. SMART stands for Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Relevant, and time-bound. Of course, it's an acrostic. It's helpful to remember what that means, but it's also, in my opinion, which is accurate, incredibly cheesy. Um, and so I'm trying to fill out this short-term goal list, and I'm brand new in the organization. I'm not even sure if I'm using the right language to express back to my coworkers and my supervisors that I understand the whole exercise of making these goals. 
And then six months into my time there, there was an organization-wide retreat, and the leader of the organization started off that entire retreat by saying, are you on the bus or off the bus? And I'm like, when did a bus come into this conversation? I'm, I'm still, like, I feel like the paint is still wet on my employment there, right? It's so recent, and they're asking me if I should really be there or not. I'm like, I'm probably the least qualified person to address that question. I don't know if I'm right here or not. And so I was left wondering, what do I even say? Like, how do I even bother making 12-month goals if the question I'm supposed to think about and reflect on is, should I really even be here? That's confusing, right? And it does lead me to a place of just wondering, why should I even bother? Well, that was a weird experience, but it underlines for me part of what goal setting is about. Because we set goals all the time. We have goals in mind. We have things we want to see accomplished, and we want to put it in some kind of frame of reference where we understand about when we're going to get done with this thing. I looked it up online, and it said, goal setting is important for self-motivation and drive as it gives meaning and purpose to what we do. That sounds pretty nice. And notice, I kept it until here. I didn't do the valedictorian speech of like, Webster's Dictionary says goals are, anyway. Goals help us get our intentions and our actions to align, right? And we all do this even if we're not thinking that we do this. We make goals to complete even the less complicated tasks of our day. If I were to say clean kitchen as like a, an, an item of things that I need to accomplish during the day, there's not a single step involved, especially if you consider that there is one right way to load a dishwasher. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> it's not a single step. But when I start that project, my goal is actually to have all the dishes washed, the counters wiped down, and all the cookware stowed back where it belongs. This is how we move through the world. We set and we pursue goals. And we also find that some of our goals go unmet. They're unrealized. They get sidetracked. We have to pivot away from that into something entirely different. Or we find that in our struggle, our goal becomes irrelevant to what we need to focus on. And sometimes we just are frustrated because we set out to do something and it didn't happen. And that can be even heartbreaking, even to the point where we grieve a goal that went unmet. Some of us, this hits very, very hard because we derive a lot of satisfaction from accomplishing goals. For others, it's more like, well, okay, that didn't happen. Let's just go on to the next thing. But however we face it, we have this common experience of unmet goals, and the Bible speaks to that. The Bible tells us that sometimes our goals don't work out, and it gives us a perspective that's beyond our own frustration or our own lack of motivation. It speaks to something much larger 
This perspective includes the Lord in the assessment of our goals, what he has in mind for us, and what he's trying to use to mature us, to grow us up in him. So we see things like Proverbs 16.9 that says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We see in Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 20.24 says, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Sometimes the path of our life isn't defined by our goals. It's defined by how God is shaping our life into a specific way that glorifies him and brings us into closer relationship with him and with others. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 3 says this, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? It sort of asks the question that is behind all of this is, well, then why do we bother? And yet we do. And sometimes we have to smile with the old adage that says man makes plans and God laughs. So the wisdom of the Old Testament certainly is speaking to this experience of having goals and living in a reality where goals are sometimes not met, but it does so with a God-centered perspective. It's reminding us that there is a limit to our perspective, that we don't really understand all that's going on. As one commentator shared, We can plan something carefully, work hard at it, and be responsible and creative in implementing our plans, and everything can go wrong in a way we never could have foreseen. This is the reality we live in. So even as we might ask, why do we bother? We are encouraged by Scripture to recognize that God has goals for us that might not be easily discerned every time, but they are there for our good. So we need a regular reminder of God's sovereign, loving directing of our lives and our response to the Lord of trusting obedience. And this brings us to this worship song that is full of wisdom and demonstrates that everyday faithfulness and vitality of worship go together. So Psalm 127 It's a song of ascents, and we've mentioned in our series, our Summer in the Psalms before, that a song of ascents was something that everybody sang together on their way to the significant festival worship times in the life of the people of God in the Old Testament. And so this was something that was to be sung regularly together. This is also distinguished as a wisdom psalm because it echoes the patterns of the wisdom literature, the Proverbs, of Ecclesiastes. It has sort of that pithy, like, hey, here's something you can take to the bank quality to it. And it's short, but I think we're going to find it's very, very deep. And the first couple of verses introduce us to that depth immediately. We know that it says, unless the Lord builds the house. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to do a careful replacement because as you see here, the Lord, and if 
you are reading a, an English transla translation that follows the conventions of this, you'll see that LORD is in all caps. That means it's signifying, it's giving us a little indication that the Hebrew here is the covenant name of God that he gave to Moses, Yahweh. And so, I'm just going to read back through it, but I'm going to do a little replacement of the Lord with Yahweh because I want us to get the personal aspect of this. I want it to ring in our ears as we hear this. So, just the first couple of verses, unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless Yahweh watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. What we're hearing here, it's intriguing. It's not getting rid of our responsibility. It's actually saying, yeah, you're responsible to do what you do, but you're supposed to have someone right there with you doing it. Really, in some ways, doing it on your behalf. The God of the universe personally wants to be involved. So unless Yahweh, this personal covenant name of God, unless he's involved, then building a house or watching over the safety of a city is fruitless. It's not going to work out. Now, is it saying that literally those efforts won't have any product? No, it's speaking to the vanity of living our lives independent of the Lord. And it's using this imagery of vanity, of emptiness, of fruitlessness, because it's trying to communicate to us, if you want your life to really, truly, deeply, thoroughly work out, you have to be connected to Yahweh, to the God who sees and knows us and loves us. So it's definitely not asking the question we might ask of why bother. It's not saying don't bother working on that house, and it's not saying don't stay awake for the sake of your city. It's making us connect our faith to our work, even our mundane work that would not seem to be inherently spiritual. Because think about it, swinging a hammer or strolling along the balcony of a watchtower are actually really great examples of work that would not appear to call out an exercise of faith. In fact, some of, it, some of us might think that's not even that much effort. And I don't swing a hammer regularly, but there are things I do that might be difficult for others, but I don't even really think about that much, right? That's the nature of work. You get used to it, you get habituated, and pretty soon you don't even realize how much effort you're putting into it. But this psalm is challenging us to invite Jesus into the mundane aspects of our everyday lives, usually to find that he's already there, ready to bless us with peace and joy in our everyday experience. In today's terms, maybe we should retool this and say, unless Jesus updates the spreadsheet... I mean, can you imagine if your work tomorrow could be a humble act of worship? 
And I know that that sometimes gets thrown around as like, well, every part of our day, our day is worship, you know, and that's true, but sometimes we miss the grounded reality of that. What if our work, our everyday work, that we don't even think we have to try that hard at doing, was a joyful conversation with Jesus throughout our day? That when we're folding laundry, when we're preparing the monthly report, when we're giving the routine well check to our patient, when we're doing that necessary work of trying to sweep up all of the drywall dust, these moments could be sacred. We could actually find in the mundane parts of our day that we're actually on holy ground. That's what this psalm is getting our attention to ask and pointing out this is what it's actually about, is living all of our lives in the presence of God, honoring Him and communing with Him and drawing our energy from Him and relying on our success, whatever that might look like, on Him. It's reminding us that as easy as it is for us to say, you know what, I'm used to my work, I'm used to doing what I do, and it doesn't call that much out from me, so I've got this. It's, it's confronting that and saying, are you assuming that you're independent of God? You're definitely different than He is, but are you independent from Him? No. Whether you recognize it consciously or not, you're actively dependent on him always. And here is an invitation to experience that every day. It can be tempting to think of the mundane things of our lives as things that we can just knock out independently, but God calls us to an active daily, moment-by-moment dependence. And so what if we don't? What if we don't end up giving our work to the Lord? Well, we see that in verse 2, don't we? In verse 2, we hear this. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. I mean, eating the bread of anxious toil. Do you want to talk about, like, that's a bumper sticker, isn't it? Like, that one really catches your attention, gets your imagination flowing, because what it's saying is, it's giving us this vivid image that confronts a reality that I think all of us share from time to time. We think that if we get up early enough and stay up late enough, that somehow we'll gain an edge in accomplishing our goals. And that vivid imagery of eating the bread of anxious toil It's confronting how easily we can fall into that cycle of thinking, if I just do more, then the results will come. But God is saying, I can give the results and I can withhold them. You need to know me. I mean, the reality is, this is something I struggle with. I consistently think, if I just get up earlier or stay up later, I'll somehow get more of my to-do list done. And for me, I probably shouldn't eat that much bread. I have a little problem with gluten, and I've got diabetes, so I'm eating the protein bar of angst. 
but it doesn't actually accomplish anything. Because I need to return to the Lord and depend on Him to work it out. Many of you have been so kind to ask about my progress in my studies. I'm trying desperately to finish up a PhD program, and I'll be done with it in December, whether I complete it or not. If you know, you know. So I'm working hard to finish it before I get done. And I'm having to remind myself, as I prepare this sermon and try to then go back to my research, I'm having to remember, unless Jesus writes this paper, all of my busyness and fussiness about it is in vain. I'm going to have to depend on him to get that done, to get my work done, to get my life going. And that contrast is complete because what do you see at the end of verse 2? He gives to his beloved sleep. It's the opposite of that anxiousness that makes us lose sleep. It's the opposite of waking up with the to-do list already in your head. It's actually that deep, satisfying rest when we give our labor to him, when we give our goals over to the Lord, when we ask Jesus to bless our efforts and to reformulate our goals when they've become too much about what we can do. Because when we devote our whole lives to the Lord, we not only give to him our labor, but obediently attend to his commands that we should rest for his glory and our good. I mean, he commands it. And I know that I'm not alone in this. Sometimes actually honoring a day of rest not working on stuff like usual, that's an incredible expression of my faith in the Lord that he's going to still take care of me even if I'm not busy. That's what he's calling us to, and that's what he wants to bless us with. So we can see all of our labor and our goals as an opportunity to trust God. It's almost as if this psalmist is saying, relax, he's got this. John Coltrane, the renowned jazz saxophonist, in the liner notes of his amazing recording of A Love Supreme, wrote this. This album is a humble offering to him, an attempt to say thank you, God, through our work, even as we do in our hearts and with our tongues. May he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. I mean, how is it that a man who played saxophone for a living can say it so much better than I can that we need to approach our goals, our strivings, the things we want to accomplish as part of our conversation, our ongoing gratitude toward God? And the opening of the next psalm in the Psalter, 128, says it this way, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. So there's a turn. There's a turn in this psalm to the final three verses, verses three through five. Solomon is taking us in a different direction, but really what he's doing is he's giving us an example. 
a rich and well-rendered picture of what trusting God with our goals looks like with the prospect of children. And I believe that there's something here for everyone because what these verses talk about can help all of us to understand our parents and if we have them, our children. Because our parents are a huge formative and shaping influence on our lives and because parenting is a huge project with so many goals. So let's just remember what these verses say. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate." The point here is that children are a blessing. A heritage in its context, in this ancient Near East context, is understood to be a gift. It's an ongoing legacy. It's staying power. It means you're not a flash in the pan or easily forgotten. And what this is pointing to is that there's a starting point for parenting. Because we need to relate to our children from a place of gratitude. Being grateful for the children the Lord has given. Now, some of you know the complications of parents who resent their children. Maybe you experienced it personally, or you know of it from friends or relations, where the way parents spoke about or to their children related to them as deficit engines. You just create problems for me, is how it comes across. Because of the demanding and unending nature of children's neediness, they need, they need a lot, they need us. Some of you probably even feel it now as grown adults. You're like, I really need mom to tell me what to do here. I really need dad to show up and and remind me this thing. But if we recognize that children are a gift, not merely to parents, but for all of us, we will not see their noise, the load of care that they require, and all the related expense as burdensome, but as a privilege gifted to us by God. If we thought of children as a gift, we would eagerly volunteer to help with their care and their instruction. This concept of having kids, it's an overwhelming project. Many times parents will relay their experience and say, I've never felt like so much was asked of me as when I had kids. But I think all of us know of those projects that ask more of us than we ever dared imagine, whether it was finishing that degree. And if, you know, for for me, it's hilarious. I almost dropped out of high school, and here I am trying to finish a doctorate. I don't like school. I don't enjoy school, but I love learning. And this project is so all-encompassing. It's like taking me down to my spare parts and reassembling me. Maybe you have a project in your life that is that way. 
Maybe you have something, some goal that you're working on that is just all-encompassing, that it, it comes and takes your personal resources whether you're ready to volunteer them or not. These are gifts that God give us, gives us. These experiences of being moved past what we thought we could do on our own so that we can indeed truly depend on him. And as we get through it, as verses 4 and 5 show us, as we get through this, that huge project or the raising of our children, there is a long-term benefit. It says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, it's the blessing of children continuing into adulthood. We have a lasting way of blessing our parents. We do. Simply by being around. It gives confidence to our parents as they see us living our lives building our lives, leaning into our careers, starting families and relationships of our own. And there's implied here a blessing of having your adult children stand with you in the challenges of life, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. What does that, what does that conjure for you? This person's ready for the challenge that's meeting them. And that's what children can be for us and what we can be for our parents. I cannot speak to the experience of others, but when my own boys encourage me as I try to accomplish difficult things, it hits deep. The psalm is pointing out the wisdom of having a perspective broader than our own so that we can actually see that our children aren't a product of our lives, but they're a blessing given to our lives. So the, the overwhelming message of this psalm, the text of it, the, the message that's coming across loud and clear is, include the Lord in your goals, even the lifelong and enduring goals that you take on, such as parenting. Now, these are excellent reminders, and I hope that they will shape the way that we walk in our lives. But there's text, and then there's subtext. Maybe you know what I mean when I say subtext. Subtext is the message under the message, right? If I say to my wife, the dishwasher is clean, that's text, right? What is the subtext? We should probably empty the clean dishes so it's ready to take on more dirty dishes. That's subtext. I think there's a subtext to this psalm. And I think the subtext pushes us to the deeper themes revealed when we consider the context of this song this song that was written by the wisest of men, Solomon, who's talking about the way we relate to Yahweh, the covenant God who knows us and is connected with us. 
Let's remember who Yahweh is. He's the covenant-making and faithful God who created all things for his glory. He is the one who sustains all things by his power. He's the one who made us, who were not a people, into his people. He is the God who is deeply invested in and involved with every detail of our lives. And this song is intended to be sung by those on their way to corporate worship with the other followers of Yahweh. It's a reminder of his call on every part of our lives in the setting of our worship of him. I think the subtext of this psalm is very clear. Ultimately, like God is interested in every part of our lives and every part of our experience, goals met and unmet. But ultimately, God is less interested in the quality and quantity of your work. He's more interested in you. God is less interested in the quality or quantity of your children. He's more interested in you. For God, the goal is you. To love you and to surround you with his care. To make you into a more profoundly radiant version of yourself. And in the midst of that, he's going to accomplish in and through you all kinds of goals. He's going to add to your family in any number of ways so that you can look around and see a harmony of voices that sing love to one another well. He's going to do all of that and more, but ultimately the starting point for him is you. He wants you. He loves you. And so if we are going to orient our lives around him, it has to start with him. And I think this is why we hear it reverberating throughout the scriptures. In John 15, you hear Jesus himself saying, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's Paul reiterating this theme in 1 Corinthians 15 saying, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. With all the complexity of our lives, God has made it simple that we need to believe in Jesus. That complexity of our life may remain, but our response can always be to believe in Jesus. As we are reminded by Jesus himself, when some asked him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? He answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Amen. Amen.